Today, Randy is addressing the question, what is required for eternal life? A lot of things in life have requirements, right? Uh, recipes require certain ingredients, uh, cars have specific requirements necessary to pass safety tests, and different professions have different requirements as well, right? Well, we thought it would be fun to interview three unique professionals and find out the requirements necessary for them to do their job. The first professional we have is Dr. Vicki Bernard. Uh, she is an epidemiologist at the CDC. Hey, Vicki, thank you for being here. Thanks, sure. Uh, so, so what exactly does an epidemiologist at the CDC do? Sure, well, an epidemiologist looks at patterns of disease or epidemics to determine who is getting the disease and why. Wow. Can you tell us uh, maybe a specific requirement necessary to be an epidemiologist at the CDC? Sure, so you, usually you would have to have a graduate degree. Mine is a PhD in epidemiology, and I've been fortunate enough to be with the CDC for almost 20 years. Wow, that's really awesome. Well, Vicki, thank you sure. so much for your time. Thank, thank you. you for coming in. Sure. Really appreciate it. Great. So next we have Greg McMichael. Uh, he's a World Series champion pitcher of the 1995 Atlanta Braves. Greg, how are you? Hi, Zane. Good to see you. So, um, Greg, uh, what's required to be a professional World Series pitcher? Well, typically we talk about three things. We talk about velocity, we talk about movement, we talk about location. So, you know, when you're talking about a small strike zone, you got to be close to that strike zone every time, and you can't be in the middle of it, you got to be on the outside of it. All right, and lastly, we have Jeff Hopek, uh, a U.S. Secret Service Federal Officer White House branch who guarded President George W. Bush. So, uh, Jeff, welcome. Hey there. Thank uh, you. I wouldn't assume there are too many requirements to guard the president. Is that correct? <laughs> yeah, that, right. That's correct. Now, it, it, my interview process alone was, uh, it was it was two years long, right? So they go all the way back in history to when you were in fifth and sixth grade, and they don't just look for references because what do we do with references? Um, here, talk to this teacher and that one. Well, of course, they were the ones that like you. Right. They go back and they want to talk to every teacher. And then on top of that is all the, the tactical shooting, the fighting in self-defense. Mm -hmm. Probably the biggest piece of all of it is the actual fitness piece of it, right? So just the test that you have to pass to get in, right? The pull-ups, the ability to run, sit-ups, wow. etc. You yeah. sound like Jason Bourne. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> He's on another level, actually. <laughs> wow, that's, 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 that's pretty incredible. All right, so all of these professionals require a certain element of perfection or expertise in their respective fields, right? Which, more than likely, none of us could ever achieve, even with hours upon hours of training. But what about eternal life? How do you attain that? Is it moral perfection or spiritual perfection? Can we exhaust hours upon hours of community service to attain it? What if we always pay a forward in every drive through line we go through? Or what if we handle every business transaction with the utmost integrity? That would make us morally perfect, right? Let's find out. So please give your attention to Randy Polk. Good morning once again. Glad to have you here as we wrap up our investigative forum. I realize there are probably some that are here for the first time. In fact, I know there are because I've met a few. And uh, so I want to give you a quick overview of where we have been. You can go back and you can podcast this on uh, perimeter.org slash, uh, I think it's If Answers. Am I correct? Can I check that out? If Answers. So you can uh, go back and check out any of these. The first week we spent uh, addressing the question, kind of as an introduction, uh, how does a person find life satisfaction? After addressing that, uh, we really rolled into the whole issue of how do you investigate? What's the right way 
to be able to uh, investigate it if it is uh, if it is correct. Christianity is the answer. Second week we talked about the Bible. Is it really God's word? How would we know that it is? Uh, how do we make claims as Christians that the Bible is an inspired and errant word of God? So we addressed that week two. In week three we got into the question of good people. How can Christians believe that of all the people who have ever lived that only those who are Christians, they're the ones that are okay. Everybody else is to be separated from God for all eternity. How does the, how does the Bible explain that? It just doesn't seem right or accurate. Then uh, we were going to go into that week, uh, why do bad things happen to good people? But because of time, we rolled that over into the next week. Bad things happen to good people. But that week, we really focused more on how can Christians believe of all the religious leaders that have ever lived, that Jesus is the one and the only way to God. And so with that, we address the question, what about other religions? How do you go about looking at other religions? How do you compare other religions to Christianity? I kind of gave you a grid work that you could use if you chose to, uh, to do that. So uh, that brings us to today, which you know now the question is, what is required to have eternal life? And we'll address with that a second question, and that is, how does a person know they're a Christian? How do they really know that? Is, it, is there a way to even know? So then we'll go into our Q&A. We're not going to go into the questions that are in John this week. I always, the last week, I like to allow you to ask any questions that come out of John that you would like. But we won't go through them uh, per se. I want to give more time to our general Q&A. So let's deal with the first big issue, and that is what is required to have eternal life? There's a little diagram that I actually shared the first week. Most of you were probably here, and I'm not going to go into great detail, but I am going to review it. Uh, I answered a question, and I used this. I typically like to wait till this week to even share it, but it's what I often call the do-done diagram. And just in brief overview, you remember that we had a box up here, and this box, uh, we would say, is God. Everybody wants to have a good relationship with God if you are a theist, meaning you believe in God. You want that God to like you. We talked about the two different ways that you can try to get in good relationship, and there are only two. Every religion of the world embraces one of these two. In fact, all of them embrace one except Christianity who embraces the other. So we put over here, this is the word performance. And so we put an arrow from perform to God, and we call this religion do. It's what we do for God or don't do because of God. And so very important to understand that. It creates a righteousness. I'll put dash R for righteousness. It creates a righteousness, but it's created by ourself, by what we do or don't do. And we call that self-righteousness. And we talked about how... how you know, though we think we don't like self-righteous people, we really do. We just don't like the haughty, arrogant ones. And uh, Jesus came along, and, and let me tell you, he, he knew that all of us, as people who are performing, are doing it by ourselves, and it's called self-righteousness. It doesn't mean we're arrogant about it, but we do it by ourselves. And so it does create a type of righteousness. That's typically called religion, as we know it today in most of the world. We talked about there's a different way, and by the way, that's where I use the illustration of the, the guy who was doing his wife uh, all these wonderful things, giving, giving her uh, 
flowers and a necklace and all that, trying to appease her because he wanted to play golf. She didn't know that until late, later. And you might remember that illustration. You can go back and see it on podcast if you're interested. But there's a second way, and this is the word grace here. Grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. And so the era comes from God here. And this religion is spelled done. It's what God has done for us. It creates a righteousness as well. And I'll put a little R over here. This righteousness over here is a righteousness that comes about by what Christ has done for us. So Christ's righteousness. Now, I closed it out by saying that a lot of people think that, oh, this is, is this where you pray a prayer and bingo, something happens in your life? Then no, uh, that's not really true. There's a fourth box you've got to put down here, and it has the word love in it. And so there's a text in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and it says, it is Christ's love for us that causes us, and I'll use the word perform, or to live for him. And so I often like to ask the question, where does one's religion actually begin? And you can ask yourself this question as you're evaluating the faith of Christianity. Does it start right here and go all the way to here, and that represents one's religious life? Or does it start right here with what God has done and go all the way around which is the real Christian faith. And so just important to understand that we want to check out this, all the religions of the world, right here. Christianity starts here and goes all the way around, if that gives you a little bit of an idea of the difference between the two. All right? You have an insert there, and you'll note that I talk about two beliefs. There are two basic beliefs for someone who becomes a Christian. If you take all of the Bible to explain how do you simplify it down to the requirements for becoming a Christian, I'd say two beliefs. One belief is that of sin, which is really saying, I agree that I've got a problem. People who are true Christians understand I've got a problem called sin, and that sin separates them from God. If they don't believe that, then according to the Bible, a person cannot become a Christian. With me? Can't become a Christian. But to believe you've got a problem and that there's even a separation from God because of the problem of sin, that does not make a person a Christian. You have to secondly also believe in Jesus, that he would be the way to God, not a way to God, but the only way to God. If you remember, we walked through that in John John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No man comes to the Father but through me. So Jesus said repeatedly, we saw it in John over and over, that you have to come. He is the gate. Uh, he is the way. He is the truth and so forth. So you have to believe in the solution. So you've got a problem. You believe the problem, and you embrace the solution. Now, right there, that's where a lot of people assume wrongly they assume that they are part of the Christian faith because they believe in their problem and they believe in the solution. It is more than that. Got to understand this. That is not the sum total of being a Christian. I assumed 
that I was a Christian growing up from my youngest memory of religion, I assumed that I was a Christian. I, for the most part, believed in the problem. I knew that I was not the person I needed to be. I didn't know the gravity of my problem, granted. For that matter, none of us understand the gravity of our problem of sin. But I did believe that Jesus was the answer because simply I had heard that from my childhood. Had I heard Allah, 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 I would have believed in Allah. I believed there was not an issue with believing that he was the solution. But then I realized that there was more than that. And so you notice in your outline, there are two expressions of trust. You remember in John, when we were walking through the gospel of John, what is required what does Jesus say is required? And in that text of so the question we had, it was the word, you must believe. That's where I use the illustration, if you remember, of the tightrope walker and going across. Oh, I believe that you can walk across that uh, without your balancing beam and a wheelbarrow. Oh, I believe. Oh, I believe. You could put somebody in that wheelbarrow, go across and come back. Oh, I believe. Well, well, then you come sit in the wheelbarrow, and that's where the person says, oh, no, 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 I don't, I don't believe. Meaning, oh, I believe you can do it, but I'm not entrusting myself to that end. So what is this trust, this belief? Two words. The first word is faith, and the second word is repentance. Now, faith is trusting in Christ alone. It's saying, I accept you are the one. It'd be like this. Let's say that a person were to die and they were standing in front of the presence of God, prepared hopefully to go into heaven, and the question would be asked. So, Randy, why should I let you into my heaven? And I say, well, I, I believe that I'm a sinner, which the Bible has said that. I agree with that, and I, and I really believe I've, uh, Jesus is the only way that I could ever get into heaven. I, I really believe that. And in addition to that, I've done a whole lot of good things. I've been moral, religious, and so forth. And based on the merit of all I've done, with the beliefs that I have, that would let me in heaven, correct? And God would say, according to the Bible, no. Uh, you, have, you have your one foot on your record and the other foot over here on Christ's record, and that's not solid ground. And, and according to the scripture, I would be separated from God on that basis. Imagine you coming in and saying, as you hear that question, why should I let you know in heaven? You say, well, I certainly believe in, in Jesus. Uh, I certainly believe that I've got a problem. But let me tell you, the only reason that I would ever get into heaven is because of what Jesus has done on my behalf and because of his record being a perfect record and him graciously giving me that record to be mine, for that reason and that reason alone, I'd get to go to heaven. And then God would say, now you have got both feet on Christ's record. That is the only solid ground. Enter into my heaven, you're received. Now that's according to the Bible. Is that correct? You've got to make that decision. Do you believe it? 
Is it real? But if you want to know what Christianity requires, that's what you see over and over and over. As we read through John, Jesus kept saying it over and over and over again. No, no, no. That's not the way. The only way you got to come through me. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. I'm the bread. I'm the gate. You got to keep understanding this. You got to bank on my record. Now that's faith, trusting in him alone. But faith has an opposite side that is not really an opposite except if you think of it like a coin. Uh, there, there's one coin and the coin has a head and it has a tail. Real Christianity has a head which is faith and a tail which is repentance. I talk to some people that say wrongly according to the Bible, doesn't mean they're wrong, but they're wrong according to the Bible, who say, you know, I came to faith when I was just so and so years of age. I didn't have repentance, but then I became such and such an age, and then I repent, repented. But I was a Christian then, and now I'm really repenting for the way I've lived. Well, let me help you understand, that is not according to the Bible. It's the two heads of a coin. It's saying, I've got a coin here, and it's a legitimate coin, but it only has a heads on it, or it only has a tail. No, the two go hand in hand. You cannot separate them. So what is Repentance. The word in the Greek language, which is the language of the New Testament, the Greek is metanoeo. We use the term metamorphosis, meta. It's the idea of change, all right? Change. Nueo is the verb form of the word nous in the Greek, which is mind. So literally, repentance is a change of one's mind. So the best way I can illustrate this, it would be as if I'm on a road and I'm walking down this road and I feel very, very, very good about this road. I feel good about it because I'm in the right lane, the correct lane. I'm in the lane of morality and I'm in the lane of religion and particularly the Christian religious lane. So I feel really, really good about where I'm going. Here's the problem. I have not noticed, I have not noticed that there are signage, signs that are telling me where I'm going, and it says living life to one's own glory. I realized in my own experience, I was living for my glory using religion and morality and the things that I believe were so right and good to make my life all the better. And so, but I'm still living life to my own glory. So I'm going along and I feel really good because there are people that are in the, the left lane and they're living life to their glory, but they're immoral and they're irreligious. They're just doing it a different way. And, but I feel really good because I'm in the right lane. And then something happens. I have an encounter with Jesus that we're going to, again, I'm going to help you understand this in just a minute. I have an encounter with Christ. It's what we've talked about, the term rebirth. It's become a Christian, a born-again Christian. Come to faith, whatever you want to call that. That happens. It is called, through history, a mystical union. It's where God sends his spirit to be united with man's spirit. Totally beyond natural. Keep that in mind. That's why somebody who's not a supernaturalist would never follow the faith of Christianity. But believing that God, being far different than man, can do what he promised he would do. He would send his spirit, a person of the Trinity, to actually indwell the heart and to radically change the life.
So something happens in my pilgrimage moving this way. Something happens and whoom. And this is what takes place. I have a turnaround. Doesn't mean that I'm going to walk perfectly. Doesn't mean that I'm going to be having it all together. Not at all. But something happens and I turn around. Now I happen to realize that now there are several lanes, but they're all equal lanes. There's not right or left. They're just people passing one another. Some are going faster than others. Now there's some people that began here to embrace some wrong teachings. They've come out of Rome many, many years ago. And the idea is it's called penance, not repentance. All right? Penance is if I take a step and I take another step and I take enough good steps, then God's going to accept me. And if I begin to fall back when I die, I would not have a salvation. It's not true. According to the Bible, it's not true. According to the Bible, once there is a turnaround, you are now on a new road. And if you look at the signage, it says living life to the glory of God. Now, we may do this. Take a very feeble step and another feeble step and maybe another one. And then we might, uh uh-oh, have a little fallback. And then another. And then there are other people that are really walking fast. They're moving along good. People are going different ways or, or different speeds. But the reality is we're going one and the same way. Saying this, according to the Bible, doesn't mean it's right, unless you truly understand if the Bible is correct, then it would be right. There's no such thing as being this way and now saying, hmm, I think I'm going to go this way now. We won't do that. You can't do that, not if you're a real Christian. I'm going to address in just a minute. There are many, 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 many people, Jesus says, that are going to look like they're going this direction, and they're really not. And I'll explain that one. But understand, if you really are a Christian, you cannot turn around. It's like being born. You can't be unborn. You can be a bad kid. You can be a bad adult. But you're always going to be born, right? So... Those two expressions of trust, very, very important. Now, I want to address one other question before we open the floor, and that is the question of how does a person know that they're a true Christian? How would you know if you became a true Christian? The first thing I have on your outline there is the cloud of doubt. I want to show you this, and this will answer a lot of questions to understand about how a person knows that they're a Christian. Let's look at this as a cloud of doubt. I'm going to put a line here. And this line represents our life moving from, I'm going to put it here, left to right. I know some of you can't see this too well, but I have it in the, in the uh, insert. So you have this line. I'm going to put a bold, big line right in the middle. And this is where a person crosses if they become a Christian. All right? So anybody on this side of the line would not be a Christian. We're moving in this direction in life. Anybody over here would be a real Christian. So I'm going to put what I would call a a cloud of doubt around that line. And I'm going to put four stations. The first station I'll put outside the cloud to the left, the other inside the cloud to the left. 
third to the right side of the line, all right, but within the cloud, and the fourth outside the cloud. Now, these are the four options that a person can have in their understanding of their Christian faith. Let's say that you were saying, I want to embrace Christianity. Now, how do I know that I have crossed that line? Well, this person here, who's at number one, they know they're not a Christian. I meet with these people all the time. We meet over lunch, and I'll and I'll ask them, you know, tell me about, well, I'm not a Christian. I don't believe in Christianity. I don't buy the Bible. I'm not a question about Jesus. I just, so they're not saying, I don't know if I'm a Christian. They say, I am not a Christian. There are other people, many of which are in here today, who say, I know I'm a Christian. I'm not really doubting that I'm a Christian. I'm very, very convinced based on my change of life. In fact, there's a verse in Romans 8, 16 that says, God's spirit bears witness with man's spirit that he is a child of God. How does he bear witness? Like any good witness on good evidence. And so what happens is my life began to change. I had no certainty that I was a Christian. I would say I'm a Christian, but if somebody says, do you know when you die you're going to go to heaven? I go, gosh, I don't think anybody can know that. I just didn't see it was possible. When I became a Christian, it wasn't very long before I had this deep certainty that if I died, I'd go to heaven. Well, maybe the Bible's accurate and God's spirit bears witness with my spirit. Do you know how he, I think, did that? He kept showing me the evidence of a changed life. Peace that I'd never had before. A whole different perspective on life. I said, well, something's changed in me. It kind of made me convinced. Oh, I'm a real Christian. It began to grow more and more until I had this deep confidence that I'm a Christian. So I, I would say, okay, I'm in number four. But then there are people who are not sure. They say, I don't know if I'm a Christian or not. I think I am. Or I, I'm not sure. They could be in either two or three, and they may not have any knowledge of the difference between these. This is what I mean. It is possible that a person could be at two, and they're saying, I, I, I don't know if I'm a Christian. In fact, if I had to bet, I'm probably not. And it's possible that they're not, but it's possible that they're wrong. Maybe they are a Christian. Or a person who might really be a Christian, uh, tell me, are, are you a Christian? Oh, I don't know. I, I kind of think probably not. And they really are a Christian, but they're not even convinced. If they had to bet, they'd say they weren't. But they really are a real Christian. These are people that live in the cloud of doubt. Beauty of the church is to help people get through the cloud of doubt. If any of you choose tonight to want to gather with me and talk, we'll talk a little bit about some of the steps to help you progress. But when I meet with people, when I, when I start, I just start meeting with them and talking to them and so forth. And when I'm on an individual basis, I'll then, at week number four, I will draw the cloud of doubt. And I say, would you do me a favor? We're going to meet one more time next week. Would you do me a favor? Would you consider where you were when we started meeting? And then would you do this? Would you tell me where you are now? Maybe it's changed. Maybe it hasn't. Just be honest. I'd like to know that. Over and over and over, I hear somebody say, I was number one. Now I think I'm at number two. I was number two. Now I think I'm number three or whatever. Now, doesn't mean that they are. That's just what they think of themselves at that time. And I always want to say, what helped you get there? 
It was the process of getting in the Bible, reading, getting answers, understanding, and so forth. So what I would encourage you to do is to evaluate where do you think you are. Keep in mind, this is the question. When you're here, you don't necessarily know for sure. Some people literally, Apostle Paul would be one in the Bible, went from one to four. I don't see that happening a lot. There's usually a one, a transition in here, a little time, and then boom, then they come out of it. But very important to understand that cloud of doubt. Now, in, in addressing the question, you see number two, it says three tests. If you were to take the book of 1 John, it's just three uh, or four, I forget, chapters, four chapters, I think. But it's a very, very, very brief book. In those few chapters, the whole book is designed, John writing for people who are saying, how do you know if you're a Christian? That's what the whole book's about. And to give you the quick breakdown, he basically gives three tests, and he repeats the test multiple times, so it's a very repetitive book. And here are the three tests. There's an intellectual test. Do you believe God's truth? Do you really believe what God has to say? Now, you may still be struggling with the Bible inerrant. That's not an issue to become a Christian. It really isn't. But the, what I would call the foundational beliefs, the majors, is Jesus who he claimed to be, and so forth. You'd have to say, I believe that, all right? The second is a social test. Do you love God's family? So the way you can tell a real Christian, the real Christian begins to see that they're part of a family of other people who are also just like them, who don't deserve to be in God's family but are. And there's a specialist there that you say, hmm, you begin to move toward loving and enjoying other Christians. And the last is a moral test. Do you follow God's ways? Now, outside the Q&A, I want to just close with this. Just a few little illustrations and stories. How do you really know you're a Christian. When I was a student, we had in our hometown a crusade. Some of the young folks here don't, wouldn't know, but there used to be a, an evangelist, a great communicator of the truth of God, would come into a community and they would fill up a stadium or some big arena and would speak night after night after night, up to a week, two weeks, three weeks, whatever. Well, they had one of those in my hometown. Now, I went to a Protestant Christian church. Uh, I, if, if somebody said, are you a Christian? I would have said, absolutely. Though I would doubt that I could have any assurance I was going to heaven, I still would say I was a Christian. So when they started having this crusade, I thought I ought to go support the work they're doing, never with the thought that I was a candidate to be helped by it. And so I go, like anybody else would, and I'm sitting at the very top of the football stadium. The way they did it, the speaker was down at the, at the, the very uh, center of the field, speaking to half the stadium full of people. And then at the end, he'd say, if you'd like to become a Christian, then you're welcome to come down here on the field and actually, at that time, become a Christian. So they got right at that point. And the speaker says this, who I was really impressed. I was so impressed with the speaker. He said, curious to know, before we close this out, 
How many of you here know, I mean really know, without any significant doubt, you know that when you die, you're going to heaven? If you will, raise your hand. And I, my immediate thought was, well, nobody's going to raise their hand because nobody can know. My church wrongly taught that you could lose your salvation. It all depended on how you were living at a particular day. And so I just bought into that. I assumed that was biblical. It wasn't, but I assumed it. And so I thought, nobody's going to raise their hand. I thought everybody would be taught like me. And I saw hands go up all over the place. And I was shocked. I went, how could they know? They haven't died yet. I even said this. This is my, some of the old people remember evangelist still alive, but uh, it's in his 90s, a fellow named Billy Graham. He was the nation's, world's best known evangelist. And I, this is what I said. Billy Graham doesn't know he's going to heaven. I certainly don't, but he doesn't even know either. Well, all those hands went up, and then this guy speaking said this. He said, now, here's the thing. If you don't know you're going to heaven, which was me, I didn't raise my hand. If you don't know you're going to heaven, it doesn't mean you're not. But I would be very suspect of myself, and I would assume that maybe I'm not, and I'd want to give attention to that. And make sure that you know. And I'm going, you can't know. Then he quoted a verse out of 1 John chapter 3. And he said, these things I've written to you who believe on the name of the Son of God that you might know you have eternal life. And I went, ooh, the Bible teaches you can know? And then he said this, he caught me off guard. He said, I'm curious, how many of you that don't know would like to know right now. Would you just raise your hand? Well, I'm not a hand raiser, all right? I'm not a, I'm not a guy that's very demonstrative and so forth. And so I'm up at the top of the stadium for a reason, okay? I can see everybody, but nobody can see me. And I'm telling you, my hand goes up just like this, without thought. I thought, gosh, anybody would want to know that, wouldn't they? I put my hand up. And then he said, I'm going to ask all of you that raised your hand to come down right here, and, and I want to have a little time with you and, and lead you into a relationship with the Lord and help you pray to invite Jesus to literally indwell your heart and change your life. Become a Christian. <laughs> well, if I say I'm not a hand raiser, I will assure you I'm not an aisle walker. I'm not, I'm not going down the aisle. It ain't going to happen. So I listened very intently while everyone else went down. A lot of people did. And down at the bottom, you could hear what he said to all the people gathered. He said, I'm going to lead you in a little prayer. And he said, here's the prayer. Three things. Would you just admit that you are a sinner? That you've got a problem of sin? I said, I can do that. He said, number two. Would you admit that Jesus is the one and only way that you're going to ever find relationship with God? If you believe that, tell him that. And I thought, well, I've done that before. I don't have a problem. But then he added a third. He said, you have to come to the place that you trust your life to him. And you need to be able to tell him, I surrender my life to you. Doesn't mean I'm going to be perfect, but I'm going to surrender my life to you. My intention is to walk and follow you. And I went, whoa, I've never done that. I only do the things that Jesus says that I like. I haven't liked most of the things he says. But I'm not, I'm not just going to follow, abandon and start following him. I said, oh, no. So I was wrestling there, and by the time I got home that night, I said, you know what? I'm going to do that. I'm ready. And I said, well, 
I didn't walk down an aisle. But they didn't kneel. So I'm going to get on my knees. So I thought pretty highly of myself. I got on my knees. Right beside my bed, I said, Lord, I'm a, you know this, I, I'm a sinner. I believe it, and i got a problem of sin. And I believe that, that Christ is the only way to God. I really believe But I don't think I've ever told you that I'm ready to surrender my life to you. So, so Lord, now I give it to you right now. Come on into my life right now. And I remember I was sitting there with my head bowed, and I went, I looked around and went, hmm, hmm, didn't work. Okay. So I go to the, they had multiple nights, so I go the next night. Man, I'm listening to that last prayer. I'm not going to walk the aisle. I go home, make sure. I said, maybe it's like a vaccination. I'd been a kid that had a vaccination. Didn't take, they said, so I had to take it again. And maybe it's like a vaccination. So I get down and I pray again. I said, Lord, come to my life. Look, come to my life. Amen. I looked up and went, hmm, didn't work. I did it three nights. Now the last night, I'm sitting there at the crusade, the last night of the crusade, and I'm sitting there and all I can do is see that aisle. And I'm going, gosh, I guess you go to hell if you don't walk down the aisle. That's, that's, <laughs> that's the problem. I, didn't, I wasn't willing. That means I'm not, okay, I'll walk the aisle. So when he said, come down the aisle, I got up and I went down the aisle. And they had a counselor there with me. And the, the, the guy prayed, the main leader, he prayed the prayer. And I was just to follow his prayer. I said, man, I got the professional's prayer going with me now. I'm good. So I bowed my head. I prayed the prayer. Come into my life. Amen. I looked up and went, huh, it doesn't even work here. So I turned over to the counselor, and, and, uh, and I said, by the way, you just need to know something. What you guys are doing is not working. <laughs> he said, what? I said, yeah, three times at home on my knees. I came down here, did it with him, and it didn't happen. It just, nothing happened. And he looked at me very wisely. He said, do you understand this is by faith? I said, well, I've heard that. What do you mean? Do you realize that it's not touch, it's not sight? It's not feeling even. It's just what is true. And you entrust yourself to what's true. He said, I'll give you a, a little, little help here. Why don't you do this? Why don't you go home and get along with God? I want you to do this. Why don't you just, why don't you just take that prayer again? But at the end of it, just say this. Say, Lord, I'm going to trust you that you've come into my heart. And said, so then you watch for the next week, two weeks, month, maybe up to a month and a half. You see if there's any changes that take place in your life. That's what will convince you you're different. I said, okay. And I did. I went home. I prayed. I said, Lord, I, I don't trust you that you've come to my life. And he said, the guy told me, he said, and if your life hadn't changed, don't, don't conclude too quickly that Christianity is not real. Because you don't even know your own heart whether you've really surrendered or not. Because you have to surrender your heart. So, wow, this is a whole different level here. This is a love relationship. It's a love relationship. Story of my son. I have four children. My youngest, a boy who, uh, his name is David. Uh, David was the, the dream kid for a dad. We just loved each other. Had a wonderful relationship. And I just I couldn't be better. And he was a good kid. And, and he made his little, you know, following of Jesus real early in life, it appeared, and so forth. And he's coming along. And then he gets up into to junior high and high school. And his mother and I look at him, and we talk among ourselves and go, does he get it or not? I don't see anything. I see a lot of religion. I see a lot of commitment to morality. But I don't see a love relationship. Okay. 
So he gets about halfway through high school, and this was his commitment to relationship with me. He'd say, Dad, can we go out and have breakfast once a week and just have a little Bible study together? So every dad who's a preacher loves to hear his son say that. I go, sure. And we'd have a little brief time. It was always fun. He always wanted to do it, didn't want to miss. One day we're sitting there together, and he says, hey, Dad, you need to really be praying for me. I said, I pray for you every day, buddy. What do you mean? He said, no, nah, Dad, I mean you need to really be praying for me. I said, for, about what? He said, well, I'm doing some pretty bad stuff. I said, like what? He said, well, I'm getting drunk a lot. I've had alcohol poisoning so many times. My buddies have said on numerous occasions they really thought I'd die in the night because I wouldn't let them take me to the hospital. Drinking way too much, way too often. I go, really? I didn't know that. Okay? He says, and that's not it. He said, I'm doing everything there is wrong to do with girls. I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm just out there doing, just having a good time. And I go, really? Wow. And then he says, when that's not it, then I said, okay, that's enough. I don't need to hear anymore. <laughs> Dad's heard enough. I said, what in the world is going on? And he said, well, here's the problem, Dad. He said, I don't want Christianity. I said, you don't want Christianity? That was a shock to me. I said, you don't want Christianity? He says, no, I don't want it. But the reason I'm asking you to pray is because I want to want it. Oh, okay. He said, I know where this is going to take me because I really know up here what's true. I really do believe it's true, but I, I just don't have it here right now. I'm just, I'm, I'm enjoying life too much right now. It's too much fun. So I said, let me ask you a question, David. Are you a Christian? Now, this is a big old six foot two, 220 pound kid. He, he comes up off the table like he's coming after me. He goes, Dad, what do you mean am I a Christian? You know I'm a Christian. And I said, I do? How do I know you're a Christian? I got a better question. How do you know you're a Christian? And he looked at me and he said, Dad, I remember the day when I was at such and such an age and I was with so-and-so and I prayed a prayer to receive Jesus and I know I was sincere. When I heard that, I didn't say a word, but I made a sound. I looked straight at him eye to eye and I went, eh. <laughs> he looked at me and said, what was that? I said, that's the buzzer. That means you got the wrong answer. He said, what do you mean? I said, you know, there's nothing in the Bible that ever looks back to the past to determine if someone's legitimately a Christian. It's always present tense. It always has to do with there's fruit in your life or that is evidence of a changed life. I don't see any evidence in your life. I'm not the one to judge. I don't know. But I'm just saying, I'm curious of why you would think. He said, well, I don't care what you say, Dad. I know I'm a Christian and that's good enough for me. That's your, your life, buddy, not mine. I'm just saying, I don't get, I don't, you know, your deal. Well, he was in his sophomore year of college. I think it was Christmas break. And uh, he came downstairs and he said, hey, Dad. And this is four years later. Keep this in mind. He came downstairs and he says, hey, Dad, you were right all along. I said, well, about what? I had no idea what he was talking about. What about what? He said, I wasn't a Christian, and I have never been a Christian.
And I said, really? What makes you say that? He said, because I've become a Christian in the last few weeks, and now I know I'm a Christian. Now I see the difference. There was fruit. There was evidence. And Boaz began to see that. It's continued on for his life. No doubt. No doubt. All I'm saying is, as we pray after the Q&A, I'm going to lead us in a prayer. And I'm going to take that minute just to say, if somebody would like to invite Jesus to come to their heart, wonderful. But I always say this to anybody I meet with. A prayer to receive Jesus is a ceremony. Ceremonies do not create love. Ceremonies simply give attention to a love that's been started. So if I ask any of you that are married, the day you met your now spouse and you said hi to them, would you say you were truly in love? And everyone, No. I say, okay. Do you know now that you love your spouse? Yeah. Tell me this. Can you tell me the day, the hour, and the minute that you started loving your spouse, the person that you married? No. But I bet you knew you loved them when you got married, didn't you? That was the ceremony. The ceremony didn't create love. You have a ceremony because of a love. So I believe that people are going to die. And they're going to, as Christians, they're going to stand before God and say, God, thank you that on August the, the, the 24th, 19-whatever, or 2000-whatever, you came into my life. And he's going to say, you know what? It wasn't August the 24th. It was the previous June the 11th. You go, June the 11th? I don't remember. June 11th. What was no, you don't remember anything, but it's, it's where you really fell in love. You, you had your ceremony a little after that, and I love that ceremony. Or he's going to say, you know, it wasn't August 24th. It was the December the 18th. He said, December the 18th? I don't remember anything December. Oh, I know. But actually, December the 18th is where you really fell in love because after you thought you'd become a Christian, you know, you were really in number two slot up on that picture. And you started getting with people, and they helped you kind of in the next steps, and it was in those next steps that you actually fell in love. And that's the December the 18th. Doesn't matter. It's just the ceremony. There's nothing wrong with the ceremony. I encourage you, find a time for a ceremony. But love is always known by fruit, right? Not by an event. It's always by fruit. Now, we're right on the minute. 11.30, so we got half an hour now to be able to do some Q&A. And then I'll, I'll take about five minutes at the end, four minutes to wrap it up and close in prayer and so forth, give you a little instruction from here. But I want to open it to the floor, and I'm going to do what I did uh, last time. I'm going to start with the floor, and then we'll go to the, the screen, and we'll just go back and forth. If there's nothing from the floor, that's all right. So I'm going to take it from the floor, though, for somebody who'd like to ask a question. Anything we've talked about or anything we haven't, I'd love to, to start her there. Throw up your hand. I'd love to have a question from the floor to get it started. Got one? Anybody here? All right, right here. All right, good. Hi. Um, okay, so you said that to be a Christian, like what you define there, right? So before a certain age, it's like, especially when you're young, you can't really comprehend that stuff. Mm -hmm. So are you saying that like people that have died before then, it's impossible for them to go to heaven? Okay, good question. In fact, that was a question that, that comes very close to what we were talking about in week number three when we were talking about good people deserving eternal punishment. The question was even asked then um, about what about babies? What about, you know, uh, the little small children you're talking about, people who've never heard about Jesus and so forth. 
And, and what we want to keep in mind is this. Here would be the only answer the Bible gives. God has a right to work in anybody's heart at any age. We even know that John the Baptist was actually brought into God's family in the womb. The story there, that God can bring his spirit to bear upon anybody at any time. We know that. Now, if the little children, let's say, or the people have never heard, not old enough, those people, if they do go to heaven, it will not be because they deserved it. It's because God gifted that to them at that age. And we don't know the answer to that. But once this we do know, anybody that has the comprehension that is old enough to even be able to think and understand and have not put their faith and trust in Jesus, according to the Bible, there would be separation from God. But the other is really silent. And so that's where I talked about my wife. She said, I believe... All babies go to heaven because I want to believe it. And, you know, I say, I just don't know because the Bible doesn't say one way or the other. But it wouldn't be because they deserved it because they were so young or they were so innocent. Because the Bible says, and I'll close with this on this one, that the Bible says we were born, literally conceived in iniquity. David himself, the psalmist, said, I was separated, I was deceived, uh, conceived in, uh, in sin as a little child. Okay? All right, but no one deserves it. Were you here by any chance at week number three when we talked about that? Okay. I spent a whole time explaining that. If you'll go to our podcast, you go to perimeter.org slash if answers on week three, and that would be week three, right? Uh, if you go on there, I will take about 20 minutes and address that whole thing and explain why it would be that Christians could believe that even good people, more religious people outside of Christianity, deserve eternal punishment. That is the teaching of the Bible. It may not be accurate. As that's, everybody has to decide their belief. Is the Bible real? Is it accurate? Is it believable or not? But if you want to know what Christianity says, yes, all would deserve eternal punishment, even the little babies. Everybody would. And it has to do because we are under the person Adam. And, that's how, and I'll explain that on that, uh, on that uh, podcast. Okay? Good question. All right, let's go to the, uh, let's go to the screen. Isn't it possible that everyone goes to heaven in the end? Well, I would say it's possible, but not if the Bible is true. I'm here representing Christianity, just trying to say what the Bible teaches. And the Bible is very, 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 very clear that that is not the case. That no one goes to heaven except those who are given the grace of God in salvation, the work of Christ on their behalf. Everybody else would perish. Obviously, that's not a, a popular feel-good answer, but it is the biblical answer for Christianity. So the answer would be no, it would not be possible if the Bible is accurate. If the Bible's accurate. All right? Question here? Uh-huh. Hi, my name is Cash. I want I want to know if God is the creator of the whole universe, he is the only way, and uh, Jesus is the only way to get to him. Why uh, the God has created so many other religions since uh, he knew the whole mankind? Yeah. Why would God create all the other religions? I suggest God didn't create the other religions. It was a sinful, broken people who created other religions. And that uh, we went through on one of the weeks, we talked about the, the whole issue of creation versus evolution. Did God create 
Everybody has to make their decision on that. I gave the, the rationale uh, why we would think there is a creation. But then why would God allow? We talked about that in week three. Uh, and we talked about how God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. You remember that? That was just, uh, that was just last uh, a week or so, last week. So God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. The other religions of the world, it's their expressions of being able to turn away from the true God and still feel I've got powerful beyond me. I've got power beyond me without having to submit to the God who says you must bow the knee to me. You see, I would say this. The thing I see about every one of us, let's, be, let's admit it. We want to be our own boss. We don't want somebody to tell us what to do and how we're to live. And, and particularly when a lot of what he says go against our feelings of what we would love to do and enjoy doing. Even if those things hurt us, we want to do them. Don't tell me, God, I can't do that. And so that is the, the Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, and here's the term I used, suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. That's what religion is. Religion is suppressing the truth of God in unrighteousness. Because innately, we believe there's something beyond us, and we don't want to submit. Much better to create a God that we don't have to worry about because he's not written anything. He's not told us that, you know, I do what I want to do. So that would be the, the uh, I think, a good answer from the Christian faith as to that. Let's put up a, one from the screen. Am I supposed to be searching for God to become a Christian, or am I supposed to wait and let God come to me? Great question. Great question. Uh, yes. <laughs> Certainly we should be searching for God. But as we search for God, we need to understand that when God does come, it's because he came to us. There's a verse in the scripture that says that God first loved us. It says we love God. Yes, we are to love God because he first loved us. Do you remember a story in the Bible? Any of you might have read enough of the Bible to, to maybe have, have uh, read the account of a man named Lazarus. It was somebody that Jesus was close to. And Lazarus had died and Jesus came and it's the story of, uh, of raising him from the dead. Now picture Lazarus. Did Lazarus have to get up and walk? He did. Didn't he? He had to get up. To get out of that tomb, did he get out? Yeah. How was he able to do that? It's because God first came to him and gave him life. If you were to look at the history of theology, the study of God through the ages, there is a lot of description given to that that says this. It's the order of salvation. In Latin, it was called the order salutis. And it was the idea of, well, what starts the whole process of a person becoming a real Christian. And it's God first loving us. Not just God doing something in history for us, but now God doing something right now for us, which is called regeneration. Once our hearts are regenerated, then we can have faith and repentance. So the first thing that happens really is God. But the first thing that you could ever notice would be what we end up doing 
Lazarus had to get up and he had to walk. Now, you know what that'll do to you? That, that will change your whole understanding of you being a Christian. What it'll do is this. You will never, if you get that, you will never look at somebody who's not a Christian and look down your nose on them and say, you ought to become a Christian like I did. What's wrong with you? So, uh, no, no, no. You go, wow, God, look what you did for me. I can't, I can't brag about what happened to me because it was really your love that started the whole process. And by the way, it will now explain why I said week number one, if you will read a few minutes at least every single day of John, you read the Bible, and that's what's going to bring life. There's a verse in Romans 10, 17. Faith, remember you have to have faith and repentance. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So there's another verse in Scripture in 2 Timothy, and it says this. It says that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, literally piercing, dividing into our very heart. So I, I don't usually say this until after the process of someone investigating. I said, you know why I was so adamant about you reading a little bit every day? More important than anything we do together, it's you reading a little bit of John every day. You know why? Because... We believe the Bible is a sword. It's like a sword. It cuts. And that's what starts the life process. The Bible says you have to die in order to come alive. How do you die? God uses his word. That's why I would read the Bible. If I'm saying, oh, maybe there's something to this, I'd say, well, hey, you do this. It is God's work, but you need to do something. You need to get into the, to the word. Or I put it this way. It'd be like when I meet with somebody... I'm helping them investigate based on what I believe. I say to them, hey, what do you think about the Bible? I don't buy the Bible. I don't believe the Bible at all. I have some peers in ministry who say, well, I can't do anything for that person. They don't even believe the Bible. I go, what are you talking about? Why do you care whether they believe the Bible? If we believe in the Christian faith, why do you care if they believe the Bible? What do you mean? What do you mean? I say, well, the way I look at it, I meet with them and they say, I don't believe the Bible. And I said, well, good. Take this little Bible home with you and read a little bit every day. I'm asking him to go stick himself every day. <laughs> then I meet with him and we go through the John and I take a big sword. And <laughs> if that analogy is correct. It, it, I mean, it's, if the Bible is what does for us, creates the faith within us, God uses the Bible, then if I'm saying, if this is real, how do I investigate? I'd say... I'd stick myself with the Bible a whole lot and see if it's real. That's the best way to find out if it's real. Go to the Bible, all right? Other one on the floor here anywhere? All right, question right back here and then up front. Good. Um, how, do you, how do you know if some, like, something is God's will and something that God wants you to do like with assurance? Uh, how do you know if something is God's will? Now, you're saying specifically like assurance of salvation? No, I mean like... Um, like, or being assured of something that you need to know if something's correct? Yeah, like okay. life's dis, like decisions that you make. Yeah, good question. How do you determine the will of God? It's a great question. And, and, and as somebody seeking to understand Christianity, it would be good to know the answer to that. Here's the way the Christian, or if you become a Christian, how you will ultimately do that. You kind of have 
priority steps. The first thing you do is you look and say, does the Bible say? Go left, go right. The Bible doesn't tell you to take this job. It doesn't say to buy that car. It doesn't say to marry that particular girl. But it might say, it does say that you should marry only people who embrace the faith that you would have. That's uh, important for a good marriage. Well, if the Bible says that and you say, well, this person's not a Christian. I shouldn't marry them yet because they're not there. That might be, okay, understand that. But otherwise, oh, yeah, they, they, they love the Lord like I do. Okay, do I marry? There's a lot of girls that love the Lord, a lot of guys that love the Lord. So do I, you know, what do I do? So if the Bible says it, fine. If not, you go to the next level. The next level is you want to say, well, need to, uh, need to find out, you know, counsel from other people. And, and even with that, you may not know. And you might go further than that. And you might, you know, you might get all kind of help and questions and read and do everything. You cannot make a decision. Then I always say this. You know how you know you're in the will of God? On any decision you make that does not violate the Bible, the issue has nothing to do with the choice you make. It's where you are when you make the choice. Explain it. The Bible says that we're to be a living sacrifice. So I like to think of somebody who can crawl up on or crawl off an altar. And I want to say, where am I when I make the decision? If you as a, a person who is a Christian wants to know the will of God, then what the person would do is simply say, I've looked, I've searched, I've asked counsel, I've, I've done, you know, there's no authority that, that goes against me, you know. I'm going to make the decision that I want to make. But I want to do this. I'm on the altar. If I'm on the altar, I'm saying, Lord, I honestly would make either decision. I'd go left or right. If you sky wrote, go left, I'd go left. But I don't know what you want me to do. So I kind of like to go right. Well, go right. Go that way. But I always say this too. You can make a decision... And you can make the decision not violating the word of God. You can make the decision that is, in your opinion, the best decision you can imagine, being convinced this is what God would have you to do. And you make that decision, it does not mean that all is going to work out good. You follow that? What it does mean is this, is that when you make the decision you make, all right, that you believe is in the will of God and you do it for the right motives, all that. When you do that, you might find out that it has terrible consequences. But I'm convinced, and this is the Bible teaching, that you'll be better off because of that decision, even if it goes wrong. Apostle Paul made a decision under the leading of the God to go into Jerusalem and he got stoned. There's nothing in the Bible that says, oh, he made a bad decision. And something bad happened, but something good came out of that. That's the, that's the real key issue. All right, let's go up here one more time. I'm hopeful that a life lived well by doing good things for my fellow man will tip the scales in my favor when my life is over. Doesn't that count for something? Hmm. Well, yes and no in this regard. It counts for something if you're a Christian that you tried to live the good life and so forth. Because the Bible says there are rewards. That there are things about our obedience and the way we live. So yeah, there's some wonderful things that come from that. But it in no way merits any of the love of God. That's the thing you've got to keep in mind. 
According to the Bible, the love of God, the acceptance of God, is merited by what Christ did 100%. Not 99, it's 100%. Now, remember the do-done diagram? What happens is when you get over there and it's been done for you by what he's done for us, now we love not in order, we obey not in order that God would love us. We start obeying because God loves us, right? And once you hit that cycle, when you're now loving because he loved me, yeah, there's some great merit. Personally, there's merit to what happens in our own experience. There's joy in things that happen, knowing that you obeyed the one that you love the most. I mean, if you're married, do you find that if you really love your spouse, that you feel good when you do something good for your spouse, and you don't feel so good when you do something bad for your spouse? Well, sure. If you hate your spouse, just hate them. You do something bad, you feel good because you did something bad, you know, to them. <laughs> but, but not if you love them. So that's the whole idea. It's a love relationship. All right. Uh, question down here. We get a get a mic down here. There we go. If God created the earth in seven days, where do dinosaurs and ancient animals come in if they live for millions of years? All right. Good question. Where would dinosaurs come in if God created in seven days? I want to say this. Uh, I'm glad you asked the question because there is a myth that is believed about the Christian faith. And that is that all people who hold to the Bible to be the inerrant word of God without any error whatsoever, therefore have to believe that the earth was created in seven literal 24-hour days. I, I held that view for a long time. And I hold to the Bible as God's word without error. I now move toward it's not being a literal seven days. Uh, I begin to study a lot and see all the different things that I had taken. Remember... The first week I talked about presuppositions. You take a few presuppositions and then you suppose on top of that and it leads you someplace. I realized that I had taken a wrong presupposition that the seven days has to mean a 24-hour literal day. Now, I always tell people this, though. If somebody says, I don't believe in a literal seven days, I want to say, why not? And if they say, because not even God could do that, then I say, not a good reason. But if you see that there's scientific evidence that would lead to that, and it in no way violates what the Word of God says, that's an option now to be taken. So there's some people who believe that love the Lord and believe the Bible fully, believe in a seven day, and there are those who believe in something well beyond the seven days. I mean, long, 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 long period of time during that. So I would just say that's something people have to discover on their own, what they believe, and they better not be too dogmatic because there's no hard, for sure, this is no doubt. I don't think you can do that. So Now, and back to your question, the dinosaurs, the truth of it is the dinosaurs could have been created right then or they might have come over time. And when I say over time, I'm meaning this, that there might have been uh, the creation of the, of the dinosaur as we know it that has evolved as a dinosaur over time. Okay? The species there at the beginning goes forever. We do believe there was a creation, whether it be in seven days or not, but, but, when, the, but when the creation took place at the creation moment, at that moment, the species are there. And that dinosaur may have changed a lot, but 
we believe the reason the dinosaur is probably gone is probably because of the great flood that we have in the Bible in Genesis 9. So that would probably explain their eradication so quickly. But that's to be debated as well. Good question. Let's go right up here. I got one more question. Let's take this one. If God is sovereign over the universe, meaning he's in charge and control over the universe, why did God have to create Jews and Gentiles to send Jesus to go through the brutality and suffering on earth? Oh, that's a good question. But I think to do that very simply, remember the statement that I was quoting uh, a couple of weeks or last week. God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. And the reason he did it, he loves his own glory, right? And rightly so. It brings greater glory to him, and I addressed that several, several weeks ago. And uh, without, after there is a death of mankind, meaning a separation of mankind from God, the only way, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins, Leviticus 19 says. So without the shedding of blood, if he chooses to love us and wants to redeem us, then there's one answer, and that is a perfect one had to shed blood. And that's why we would have him going to the cross. So he came to earth knowing he was coming for that purpose. And that's why he kept saying, my time is not time. My time what? My time for why I came, to actually go to the cross so he could pay for sins. Hey, it's been uh, fun just dealing with some of these things and hearing your questions and so forth. I would like to close out by inviting you to a number of different options if you would choose, so kind of where to go to here. You have this looking for some next steps. I'm going to invite you, if you would, and you can do it now or later, but you just, you'll end up just tearing that off. Keep this, because it has some of the information I'm sharing, and you may want to turn this in. You don't have to, but you're welcome to. You can turn it in with name, without name. That's your, your call. But here are the things that I want to remind you are offering. And then you got at the bottom, I need a reminder, let us know. There's Essentials of Faith class, uh, which is a way that you could get into learning the basics of Christianity on a week-to-week basis for about four, five, six weeks. I forget how long it is. We have what's called the Taste of Perimeter on there, which is a monthly offering that my wife Carol and I do here in our fellowship hall. It's a covered dish at 5 o'clock on a uh, once-a-month basis on Sunday evening, and it is an inspirational, this is how you could get started in the life of the church or determine, do you like this church? I'll tell a story, a very inspirational story about Perimeter, how we got started, and it's kind of a way to kind of get your faith jump-started a bit. So you'll see what I mean when you hear the story. But we'd love to have you at that as well. Uh, By the way, our next Taste of Perimeter is uh, June the 11th. We also have a little book that I've written that has a lot of the information I've been walking through here. It's in a little book called The Answer, and it's available out there on the table. You can pick one up. Uh, This is for our seeking uh, friends here that are not part of Perimeter Church. Feel free to take one as a gift from us. We'd love for you to have one of those. It's a book I wrote a number of years ago that just put a lot of this uh, critical detail uh, kind of together. And then there's always just coming to church. Uh, I'm going to be... I'm going to be out for the next several weeks uh, doing some travel to Asia and beyond so, and other places. But, but uh, uh, we have a great teaching team. In fact, we're doing something very special coming up the next, uh, after next week. We've got the, the next few weeks will be a young leader series. We bring in some young leaders from around the, the country that come in and, and preach for us on, on Sundays. But uh, then I'll be back starting a series on grace that would be an interesting one uh, starting in, um, in July. So uh, feel free to... 
come and be a part any way we can help you. We'd love to do that. I'm going to close in prayer, and it might be that you would like to even pray to receive Christ. I know that man who led for me, it was a blessing that I could at least at that point uh, make a ceremonial statement that I, I thought I was ready, and I wanted to have an opportunity then to do that. If you would think, I think I have over this period of time or at some point come to the place that I'm willing to say, I believe that I have a problem, I believe that the answer is Jesus, and I am ready to follow him, then maybe you would pray with me even as I pray now. All right? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for this time of investigating, and I pray for those that, that might sense there's a love because there's a willingness to follow, and there's a belief that you are who you claim to be and that we have a need that requires you to save us. So I pray for any in that condition now would be able to say, Lord, come into my heart right now. I really do surrender. And I want to invite you to take residence in my heart. And I'm, I'm telling you that it is my intention to follow you. And I pray you would take me from here and help me to understand your love. Father, I pray for all of us, those that are not ready, willing, at this point. Uh, I pray their investigation might continue even because of this and that you might use your church to help in that process. So we thank you for this time. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Good to have you here. Thank you for coming.